Nothing. Nothing but. Nothing but net. Net, net, net. Welcome to Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. Before we get into the meat of today's show, let's recap on why there's so much interest and buzz around net, net, net properties. Triple net properties are commercial real estate investments where the tenants, usually brand name corporations, pay you rent every month. Can you say mailbox money? In addition, they pay the real estate taxes, insurance, and maintenance for the property. No toilets, termites, or taxes. What's not to like? You can remember what net, 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 or triple net stands for by using TIM, Taxes, Insurance, and Maintenance. With triple net properties, there's lower risk income and cash flow because rents are guaranteed by strong credit tenants. Preservation of wealth because rent increases and property appreciation are bulwarks against inflation and a great store of value. Tax efficiency. The government wants investment in commercial real estate, so they provide inducements through depreciation and deductions which shelter income from taxation. Tax deferral, which gives potential for infinite tax deferral with 1031 exchanges, which are very popular in the triple net space. Triple net properties are a tangible asset, and as Mark Twain once said, buy land, they ain't making any more of it. Hello and welcome back to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for commercial triple net real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, joined by our co-host, Michael Flight, and we have a rock star guest for you guys today, one we've been looking forward to for a while. And I say that because I think, Michael, we began this conversation with Jeff a few months back, and then it just rekindled here. I'm happy to have him on the show with us now, Jeff Cermak. Before I get into Jeff's detailed bio, I want to flip it over to Michael, and then we'll, we'll get a quick introduction from Jeff as well. Yeah, Jeff has not only been, I, I want to say, a staple in the Chicago retail uh, industry and in the Chicago retail scene, and he's done stuff all over the country. He's got a shopping center that we run that they named the shopping center after him. So it's Cermak Plaza. So I'm just joking around about that. I think Jeff shares the same name as Anton Cermak, who is a former Chicago mayor that might or might not have gotten killed during a presidential assassination attempt. But anyways, we are really excited to have Jeff here because Jeff really knows his stuff. He's done things for just household, you know, worldwide brand names that everybody knows. With that, I'll, I'll let you go through his detail bio. Absolutely. And, and it's funny that you mentioned uh, the Cermak Plaza during our pre-call before you hopped on. I thought for sure that this was the this was the guy it was named after. I'm like, oh man, we've got the legend himself. He's here. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Cermak Plaza today too. Who knows? Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Cermak, for more than 30 years, he has been enjoying his passion working in commercial real estate. Many recognize Jeff as an industry market expert, whether an assignment involves leasing, acquisition, disposition, Development, site selections, or creating real estate best practices, Jeff has structured results in some of the most challenging situations. He has gained his commercial real estate acumen from years of employment in the real estate departments of McDonald's, Starbucks, True Value, and Ace Hardware Corporation. Additionally, he has been the director of acquisitions for Bridgestone Firestone's preferred developer and a resident consultant for 7-Eleven, TMX Finance, along with a host of local and regional small and mid-sized businesses. Complementing his extensive corporate experience, since 2016, Jeff has consulted in the public sector for villages 
and the Southland Economic Corporation, which consists of a consortium of mayors and city managers from nearly 50 suburban municipalities. And that is just really scratching the surface. I could go for a lot more on, on Jeff's bio. He's really uh, got quite the resume, ladies and gentlemen. But here we go. Jeff Cermak, the microphone is yours. Thanks for the introduction. If I didn't know myself any better, I would be impressed. But um, thanks. That was a sort of a, a nice lead into this, but you're setting the bar awful high for me. I'll do the best I can to explain, you know, some of my experiences and some of my past times that I've dealt with in various uh, capacities with various groups of people and in various users and how we put developments together and how we basically get down to where you're adding value to property. And Michael, was there anything in, uh, in Jeff's bio that we might have missed or that you that came to mind for you that you want to highlight? And then also, could you kind of transition that into what we're going to get into today? Yeah, well, I think why I really wanted to have Jeff on is um, I've known a lot of site selection people that work for, and they, they call them tenant reps over the years. And Jeff has specialized in some of the biggest and best known freestanding tenants in the industry. So, I mean, when you get McDonald's and you get Starbucks, you know, those are like the two big dogs in terms of freestanding buildings and, you know, what they're looking for. But he's also done stuff for automotive like Firestone and 7-Eleven and everybody else. So, He's got a really well-rounded background in terms of what retailers are looking for or what service providers are looking for in terms of, you know, site selection, whether it's we're looking for these metropolitan areas and this, this and that. And the reason why I think this is important, and Jeff and I were talking about it a little bit before we started, a lot of people just stress the fact that if you do a single tenant lease, all you have to worry about is the tenant credit. We've always stressed the fact that you need a good location. And the primary thing is the location and then the tenant credit. Because if it's a bad location, it doesn't matter whether it's tenant credit, it doesn't matter what the tenant brand is, they're not going to do business and they're going to close the location. So with that, I'll let Jeff handle it and you know give us some war stories. Yeah, well, I can draw upon that a little bit. You know, the we talked a little bit about baseball before we got on here. And, you know, if they build it, they will come. You know, if you give me McDonald's and you build it, you will come to the site. You will buy your Big Mac when you get the Big Mac attack or whatever. Or if it's a Starbucks, you will come because it's got their sign up there and they know exactly what they're going to get. And it's a consistent product. But you know what? There's something in a customer psyche. If they don't have a good experience, they're not going to come as often. So I can put one McDonald's on one location or one Starbucks or 7-Eleven or Fuel Center or whatever it might be, and they'll probably get patronized. But what it really comes down to is how frequent will those people be coming back? And if they come back frequently, now the sales for that franchisee or that corporate store, whatever it might be, have increased. And when it comes time to say, how badly do we want this location? Do we want to renew? Do we want to relocate? Do we want to rebuild in place once the uh, property gets a little bit obsolete? Do we want to add another double drive-through, which was a big thing about 10 years ago with McDonald's, adding that and trying to buy the neighbor's garage so they have enough space to do it. So, you know, all those things come down to I said earlier, if they if you build it, they will come and they will when you have those uh, national iconic brands. But the fact is, is they may relocate you if you don't build it in the right place. It's usually good out of the gates. There's that honeymoon 10 year period with any of these iconic ones. 
the big question is, will they come? Now you purchase a property and you pay for the commodity. You're paying a lot more because you're what you ended to earlier. You're paying for that credit. I mean, I worked with uh, consumer installment loan guys where the cap rates were, you know, eight, nine, 10%. You work with Starbucks where they're pushing below 5%. The commodity comes out to be a lot less. It becomes upside down when you're, when you're spending $2 million on a, on a site that, you know, costs you, you know, a million and a half to get into. So you're, you're half million dollars upside down, so to speak, but hopefully you'll make that back or you should make that back on that cap rate. And, and that really is, will the renewal come through? Will they, will they go through there? And if it has, have you made it, if it doesn't, have you made enough money that now you can take that commodity and now you might be putting that B grade tenant in there, but you've got it paid down and everything else, you know, where you really make the, uh, uh, the money is whether or not that tenant stays in place long term. Okay. So that, uh, explain a little bit of, you know, if they build it, they will come, but you got to build it in the right spot. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and specifically, because I remember when Starbucks first started, I think we did their number six store in the Chicago area, but it was a in Hyde Park in the city of Chicago, and it didn't have a drive-thru. And at the time, they were doing more city type of stores. But that store just was doing insane volume. <laughs> and just, you know, they, they, couldn't, it, it, they couldn't keep the coffee in the front because they were brewing coffee. And then just, you know, they had to have garbage service every day to, to get rid of it. The thing is, is that the more sales they do, the more successful they are. And so, it's all about when they started doing drive-throughs and stuff, they were looking more for like a morning drive type of a thing. Or can you give us a little idea as to what McDonald's looks at? Again, we know that McDonald's is in the real estate business. When you put a McDonald's there, everybody else kind of shows up too. Can you right. give us a little bit of an idea as to how some of that stuff takes place and what the decisions go into that? Well, you touched upon the morning side. There's there's certain criteria. McDonald's actually had a, a pretty sophisticated system where you could rank sites. And it was interesting when you would go out and you'd look at a site and you would put together a, a 60, 70 page package on it. And the, the committee would come through, which in that case was the director or the, the regional the regional director, I forget exactly the title that they had, but it was almost a one-man approval. Everybody would talk to him about it, and he would flip open about two or three different pages, look at comp, your comp sites, what you've looked at before, and uh, how many rooftops are in the area, and he would say yes or no to it, but you still had to put together that 70-page package on it. Well, I want to <laughs> just stop right there. It's like they had 70 pages of criteria that right. they look for in Right. You know, what the generators are, you know, what the hospitals are, everything, um, it, everything from what was called. Um, uh, and a generator would be traffic generator, right? A traffic generator, such as a hospital, a high school, uh, rooftops. Uh, is there, are there shopping uh, in the area? Work, home and shop was a big term that they would get, you know, how many, well, who works there, who shops there and who lives there. And they would look at that and then they'd break those criteria out. Um, they're pretty sophisticated in as much that they knew, uh, they called it the deterioration of the population, I think, where they would know, you know, if you were a 25 year old man, how many Big Macs you were gonna buy from them based on how far you were from the site where you lived. And they would come up with a pretty sophisticated number of what their sales would be on that site. I should, and you know, was it something that was written in stone? It got, it got debated by 
everybody and we we fought on it but it came down to where the general manager of the uh, of the region would say yes or no you'd bless it and you would you would move forward with the location or or you would uh move on well, and I, I think we could see the i mean even if they didn't follow it religiously you could see it in the success of the brand yeah yeah, yeah. and it, it comes down to did they do they have enough of the criteria there and uh you know, McDonald's really wanted to have their franchise own the place, the locations. But a lot of times when a franchise wouldn't accept it, they would open up a corporate store there and then they would sell it to the franchise or cut a different deal with the franchise for uh, for a different price. And usually it wasn't as good a deal as they originally gave that franchisee. But, you know, getting back to the criteria, the the morning side of the of the site was important for Starbucks, the far corner, which means it's the corner when you pull up to the stoplight that you see it on your right-hand side in front of you. That's easier to pull into and it's easier to pull out of. And I was doing some work actually in training with Starbucks. And I met with people from all across the United States, the different acquisitions people. And we were talking about Chicago. And this we happened to be um, doing our training out in Virginia. I was talking about the right in, right out. And these people would look at me with this look on their face and they're going, what are you talking about right in, right out? I go, well, people don't make left-hand turns into into locations and because they really don't, they avoid it. So that's where you try to shoelace a street where you'd put one here and then down the road, you'd put another one on the other side so people could be doing their right in, right outs. Well, then later on, some of these same people came to train in Chicago and they said, oh, we get what you're talking about now. Because, you know, they would go down a North Avenue or an Ogden Avenue or Gulf Road, and they'd realize it's not fun making a left-hand turn and then trying to get out of that site on the left-hand side. I guess that opened up more opportunity for the site guys because, you, you know, one, you know, within the mile, you might be able to put another one on the other side of the road and get it approved. So no, Jeff Shermack is responsible for the saturation of Starbucks in the United States. Well, <laughs> I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal. This is when we were going strong that Starbucks opened up a Starbucks in their bathroom. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, it's a, it got saturated. It, it is saturated, you know, and I worked for a company that I thought they had a great idea where you saw them shut down. Um, Title Max, uh, TMX Finance was consumer installment loan. I opened up about 70 stores from northern Wisconsin to southern Illinois in about a two and a half year period, which is a lot of deals going on. And um, their idea was when this was a hot item and they're worried about licensing problems and that, the CEO was a pretty smart guy. He opened up more stores and he saturated the market himself to cannibalize his own stores rather than let somebody else come in. When when the excitement died down, he shut down the other stores, five-year leases and some 10-year leases. So it was just another strategy that... The guy that bought the net lease on the five-year deal on that probably is getting an eight, nine cap, was happy. But now he's sitting with a property that might be a little bit tougher to sell than the guy that had the 10-year lease that this guy's going to be there for the next 20, 25 years. That was just one strategy where it was like saturation intentionally, knowing that you're going to cannibalize your own store rather than letting somebody else do that. And Starbucks and McDonald's is not a stranger to that. You know, they, they're they trying to keep the, the competition out. Ray Kroc said one of my favorite things, you know, because in a way it's a little bit hypocritical how he was like, you know, we are the nicest people. We're nice to our employees. And they are. And they were good. They were, it's a good corporation. He said, but if you, if you see your uh, competition drowning, go grab the garden hose and shove it down his throat. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> idea. So, you know, a little bit of a, a, a difference there, but you, you want to get your market share and you want to protect it. And, uh, you know, when I get back to that, the customer experience, it keeps coming back to customer experience. You know, you pull onto that site. You, can you turn in and out of there well? Is the car motion on the site good? You know, does it drive through stack right? Is there an escape lane? You know, so it's a lot comes down to what the site actually is. Michael, I, there's so many things Jeff just hit on that are fantastic. Uh, the first one, he just brought it back, which was um, the customer experience and how just how valuable that piece is. I know we're working on the triple net secrets. We might have to add that as a secret. So thank you, Jeff. And then Jeff, I'm curious to get your take on this because what do you think can be learned moving forward for essential businesses looking at, for example, we've re- we referenced Starbucks and McDonald's a lot. From what I've seen, both have they've kind of handled this transition well. It seems like McDonald's has probably done better. I know a few Starbucks locally where I'm at where they had to close down some locations. I don't think McDonald's is having the same issue with having to shut down locations. I could be wrong. What, I mean, has, has McDonald's kind of handled this better or was Starbucks just in a bad position to begin with because of it was getting saturated? And, and let me do a follow-on. You give us, because this is going to blow people's minds, what is McDonald's percentage of drive through business? Well, you know, I haven't looked at a recent, um, you know, uh, statistic on that, but certainly 20 years ago, it was, it went from very, being very small to over 50%. And I think with the pandemic, it's, it's up around, well, with the pandemic, it's, it's a hundred percent now because a lot of those uh, stores are shuttered, but going up into that time, it was pushing 60, 70% coming through the drive-through. You know, in, in the operations of a McDonald's, uh, a lot of times people go inside the store and sort of complain because they would see the hustle and the bustle going on in the store and they're all worried about the drive through. And it was, it's true. They, the front counter was important to them, but the priority was getting the people through the drive through and getting the people through quick. They time. They actually, through computer systems, they time when the time you place your order to the time you receive your order, and they uh, they rate you compared to other franchisees, and those people get rewarded for that, either through some type of, you know, various perks that they're giving them. Some, by you the drive through sometimes you can see they got the little clock, like the little countdown for like between yeah. each order, yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's, that's going into their statistics on how 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 well they're they're handling that drive. So it's it, it's a pretty phenomenal uh, operation on what they're what they're doing there. You know, and it's I've even seen that I can jump over to Seven Eleven and the work I did there. I was there for there for about two and a half years as a, a ten ninety nine uh, consultant, but I was in house resident on their computers, looking you know all, all the things. If I were a, a site guy there. And a little bit of a difference there was McDonald's would where you said, why are McDonald's succeeding? If they weren't getting the sales out of a location that they thought they should be getting, they would be putting a lot of resources towards that to try to move those sales up. 7-Eleven was sort of the opposite. I saw some fantastic locations that were management problems that they just said, shut it down, get rid of the real estate. And I'm, you know, being a real estate guy, I'm going, that's not the problem. This real estate's, you know, it's prime. And I would go into the store and it would be a little bit not as stocked as well. It'd be a little bit dirty. Again, coming back to the customer experience, people just didn't go there as much because they didn't feel as welcome. It just wasn't good. And people don't realize why they're not going there. They just don't go there as much, you know, and that impulse gets gets a little uh, less stroked every time they, they go by. 
um, because, you know, the, the site's hard to pull in out of. It's uh, dirty in the store, perceived a little bit different, no matter what brand you are. So I think that's one of the keys is, is uh, making sure the, the whole package includes a customer experience. What are you looking for or what what should anyone looking to acquire a triple net property be looking for in an essential business now? Like what are some things that you think essential businesses are doing that is going to separate them from the pack over the next, say, five years? You know, I wish I had a crystal ball exactly on what to do, but I think it comes back down to the fundamentals is, you know, we talked about how important the site is, but don't, you know, discount the fact that they're a high credit and they've got the deep enough pockets to get them through a, t- through a pandemic or get them through some, some other crisis. So I think you want to look at that. And again, it's all risk reward. If I'm paying a, a, an 11 cap on something, there must be some risk there. And if they hang on, I've just hit a home run. You know, if, if they're pay, if I'm, if I can justify a four and a half cap on the location and uh, there, there's a reason for that. And I've got a stable investment and I don't have too many problems to worry about uh, down the road. I personally own some properties out in some rural markets and I, I sort of, uh, you know, the check rolls in and I'm really happy. It's great. But on the other hand, I'm thinking if these guys go out, I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but hopefully the checks, enough checks have rolled in that I can weather that storm if they do decide to leave and just, sell the property off as a commodity value. You know, those are some of the things that I think that you have to just look at the risk reward. And if you're an aggressive investor and you think that this uh, this type of tenant and this location is, uh, is good, then you want to really look at the real estate because there's a good chance you'll be getting that real estate when you have a tenant that is probably not high as credit and doesn't have the pockets to weather it out. You have a better chance of taking that back what you paid for that real estate, how close can you come to dispose of that real estate at that same number? So we've we've discussed the tenant credit location. Really, it's for me, the, the big takeaway of getting so far is the customer experience because it's just such an essential piece that I think can get overlooked. What are maybe a couple other secrets or things that from your experience, you've noticed like, wow, I really need to pay attention to this because otherwise we might miss something. And wow. I, I know it's going to um, challenge you a little bit. So if you got take your time. You know, again, you know, you can even look at, you know, what what's going up and down the street. Who are the neighbors? If you're getting that more risky of a location and you're not doing McDonald's, but you've got Starbucks and McDonald's on each side of you, chances are you've got a pretty good spot and you've got a good a good commodity. I always compare the commodity when the lease is done to what you're buying that lease for. So the better the real estate, the better chances you have of uh, maximizing your gains once that lease expires and that tenant is no longer there. The big win is when that tenant renews and uh, you know you, you go ahead and you get your uh, internal rate of return figured out for the 10 years and now you can redo it again at a bigger, at a, at a nicer number for the next 10 years when they renew. Got a message from Michael. Uh, his internet cut out, guys. So I don't know what's going on in Chicago, but it looks like you're doing all right, Jeff. <laughs> um, I guess so. So, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue here. He said to keep going. Following up on your last statement, you mentioned some things about leasing and renewals. So I'm sure you've had plenty of experience in just in that space within the sector. Can you tell us a little bit about when it comes down to leasing? And I guess we'll start with that, like renewing a lease. What are some things that you really got to pay attention to when you're reaching that point with your, um, with your tenant? 
Well, know what the market is and know, know what alternatives they have and the expense it is for them not to renew it. Why in an office market is, it, is a broker paid when he re- relocates a, a tenant? Because the office guy doesn't really care what, in as much, doesn't care what's outside that office door. He's worried about what's going on inside and he can do his business on this side of the street or that side of the street. Whereas a retail guy, he's got to stay, if he's got an established location and he's doing well, he's going to stay there. And that's why the broker doesn't get a renewal fee on that because they don't need his help to keep him there. If he moves now, the real estate broker is going to probably get a commission somewhere when he relocates that guy. But it's not like an, like an office lease where you can just move him from one, one building over another and even have relocation fees because it makes sense for that. But understand your market, understand what type of uh, business they're doing. Because I was even with companies where they hired people just to go to call this the landlords and, and you know, cry the a, a river of tears on how they're doing so terrible. And I knew these locations were some of their top locations, but they're just looking for concessions as part of doing business, you know. So even when those tenants are doing well, you know, it, it, it's going to uh, mean they're going to be looking for it on a renewal. One of the things that I always like doing is uh, if you've got a renewal coming up in 10 years, talk to the guy in eight years and try to get them to renew then because they're going to be looking for a reduction anyway. They always do. I mean, the, the options out there and, you know, if they're paying 10 bucks, they're going to try to get you for nine bucks. In the eighth year, go ahead and talk to the guy and say, you know, can we get you, you've got a five-year renewal going here right now. I want to refinance my property, whatever the reason is. Can we get you to, uh, you know, go for it? We're going to put you on for seven years or eight years or another 10 years going forward here. And here, this is the concession I will give you. And it makes it worthwhile to know that you've got that tenant in their long term, because chances are they're going to be looking for a concession or at least playing the game for a concession once the renewal comes due. And so to clarify, if you're the the landlord, the owner, starting the conversation for the renewal of the lease early, maybe not always, but normally is going to be in your advantage. You're not going to want to, in any situation, wait until you have that conversation. Right. Because, you know, the options only in the, the it's only good for the, the tenant. I mean, they can either say yes to the option or they can say no to the option or they can renew, renegotiate the option. You're waiting for them. So this is sort of taking a proactive approach to seeing where they are. It's better to give them, you know, if you've got eight years left, get them get seven years of it firm and know what's going on rather than just having them go out in two years and hoping for the next five on the renewal. Just one of the strategies that that they might use doesn't mean the tenant's always going to bite at it. But you know, if you give them a reason you want to refinance the property and you need a longer term lease, and you know, let's work this together, it, it can it can be a win win for both of them. So earlier uh, you mentioned the office market, and that's definitely a, a sector right now that I feel as though is up in the air, but might have, especially suburban office, sounds like it might have some excitement or potential behind it moving forward, based on your experience, I mean, what what have you seen in the office space leading up until this transition that we're living in now? And what do you, I know you don't have the crystal ball maybe in front of you, but what do you, what do you see um, for the future of office? Price per pound is great with office right now. I mean, you can, you can get it cheap, you can do it well. I just think with the pandemic and everything else that's come through, it's demand is going to be slow coming back. You know, it's interesting. McDonald's moved from work to, uh, 
downtown. And I don't know if they're, if they're this same situation would have posed them right now, if they would have been making that move. I think they were sitting on a ton of cash and that's why they moved. They say it was to get downtown talent, to get young people to join their company. Uh, and a lot of those people now, if you look at even the apartment uh, industry in, in Chicago. They're giving away concessions. I think they said it went from a 97% occupancy to an 87%. Don't quote that, but it's it's in those ranges. Yeah, so these uh, they're they're giving away a, a, a lot of rent. And a lot of those people are moving to the suburbs. You know, they see higher crime, they're seeing, you know, less desirable reasons to be in the city. And so now all these businesses that migrated to the central business district. I don't know if they would be, but I, I sort of chuckle thinking, yeah, they might not have think this was that great of a decision right now in, in a short term. Yeah, and that's very interesting. It's got me thinking as far as right now, um, and I don't know, maybe we touched on this a little bit earlier too, but what you are working on now, what you're focused on, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing day to day and also in that day to day process, what you're optimistic about moving forward? I'm right now, uh, about two years ago, I, uh, for about the last five years, two years that ended, I was uh, with the hardware industry. I was working for True Value and Ace Hardware as their national real estate manager. And through reorganizations and that, I left the company. So that was a great experience working with the cooperatives and how they go about it. I am representing some of the ACE people right now and finding locations. We did an essential business. We did a deal this year, a, a major deal with one of their tenants, where actually I was, in that case, I was representing the landlord as a broker, but we brought ACE in because of the relationship. Then uh, I've also uh, sold a few freestanding properties. One just closed this month that uh, was a former Sarah Lee there, and that's for redevelopment. So even, even when this slow period of time, there still is activity out there. People ask me, well, you know, you're rebuilding a business now that you're away from the corporate end and you're going more into consulting and more into uh, some other areas. And I said, well, with commercial real estate, it's such a long process. It's not like you're selling a loaf of bread off the uh, shelf and you've got to turn that product or else it's going to be stale or your, your shelf time and your shelf life and your inventory turns are, are screwed up. But then it's, you know, when you're talking a year, two years to get a deal done, the ebbs and the flows of the market, you don't notice them that much because you're used to them happening in a good market or in a, or in a poor market. There is less activity. I, I notice that right now. There's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. And I think once, you know, all these uh, restaurants that are going under, we are just talking about that yesterday with somebody saying they're all going to flood back. I mean, it's, it's a shame. Some people are losing fortunes and, you know, your heart goes out to those people. But once we get back to some type of normal world again, there's going to be the backfill. I mean, people are going to want to go out. There's going to be opportunity for that new guy that or that. But we even said that it's probably going to be those same guys that lost a fortune are going to go back in to try to regain their fortune because they've got the knowledge and the ability and the, the gumption to do something like that. It's really interesting you mentioned that. We've got Michael rejoining us here, too. So we'll, we'll flip it to him in a, in a moment. Um, but someone else we recently had on the show talked about a very similar theory to what you just referenced, which is the hermit crab theory, which is basically you've got these shells, you've got hotels or restaurants or whatever, which a hotel is built to be a hotel. A restaurant is built to be a restaurant. And so, yes, it might go vacant for a little bit, might be struggling now, but eventually 
someone who's figured it out is going to work their way back in there and, and get it back up to speed. And so it's finding that, that opportunity there in between. We are getting ready to wind it down, but Michael, you're back here. Is there anything you caught from Jeff that you wanted to follow up on? No, I think we pretty much covered everything. I really do apologize. First time in a, a long time that our internet just went out and it just happened to go out in the middle of this podcast. So I, I do apologize. I do appreciate Jeff's knowledge, the uh, outstanding, you know, some of the stuff. I mean, there, there was too much to really take in, especially when he starts talking about rooftops and what they're looking at and uh, the term shoelacing which is putting things on, on opposite corners so everybody can do like the right-hand turns and stuff like that. I mean, it's just the amount of knowledge that somebody like Jeff brings to it is just incredible. So I, I really do appreciate you coming and uh, talking today, Jeff. Well, I hope what I said uh, made some sense and uh, was beneficial. I'll have to watch my podcast and see what, what makes sense to me. <laughs> Well, Jeff, if you could also provide for our listeners a preferred way for them to reach out and get in touch with you if they heard something that resonated with them today. No problem. Basically, what they can reach out to me is jcermak, J-C-E-R-M-A-K at C-C-I-M dot net or uh, my phone number 708-447-0112. My DBA is Incline Real Estate Advisors. We are doing basically property. We do property management. I'm actually taking on about 16 leasing managers right now for some uh, major projects up on the northwest suburbs in five apartment properties, and as well as uh, doing what I call a very targeted specialized retail brokerage assignments uh, from tenant rep to property dispositions or property leasing. So if anybody needs help in any of those areas, certainly would love to talk to them. Wow. Staying busy. Uh, one more time, your email address, it was jcermak at? dcim.net, certified commercial investment member.net. There it is. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we were joined today by Jeff Cermak. Actually, Jeff, I'm going to ask you for this one more piece. Could you give us a piece of wisdom, a parting piece of wisdom uh, to take into our new year? Parting piece of wisdom. I guess coming back, if you're looking at real estate, understand what the customer experience is going to be with that real estate. And if it's good for you as a customer going onto that site, going into there or whatever it is, not so much what the management of that site's doing, but if everything else feels right with the real estate, then it's probably a pretty good location. If it's not a good a customer experience getting on and off that state at real estate and doing what you need to, then uh, that might be your first litmus test that mm -hmm. it's something to stay away from. There it is. All right. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for commercial triple net real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, joined by Michael Flight, our co-host. And we had our episode today featuring Jeff Cermak of Incline Real Estate. Thank you for tuning in and we will catch you in the next episode. Thank you once again for joining us here on Nothing But Net the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. If you enjoyed what you heard today, one last friendly reminder to like, share, subscribe, or leave a review for us. It really helps a ton with the show's visibility. For the Nothing But Net team, I'm Adam Carswell. Take care. Nothing But Net.
The Nothing But Net podcast is not intended to provide legal, tax counsel, or accounting advice. Adam Carswell, Michael Flight, Concordia Realty Corporation, Liberty Real Estate Fund, LLC, and their affiliates do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice or the worthiness and promotion of any particular investment. This material has been prepared for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors before engaging in any transaction or undertaking. We highly encourage individuals and investors to seek the counsel of a qualified attorney as well as seek the counsel of a tax professional or certified public accountant to determine if there are any potential tax liabilities or consequences as a result of anything contained herein. All listeners of this podcast or video should understand that there are no guarantees of any success, outcome, or profitability of any transaction or undertaking expressed or implied and will not be liable for any financial or other losses or damages incurred as a result of any undertaking. Go to nothingbutnet.us for a complete set of disclosures. Thank you.